Welcome everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. With me are Steve Fierro from Awakened Mind, Hartmut Schumacher from Go Your Own Path, and John from or the Oracle of VO Fitness. And of course, we have the one and only Dr. Madhava Seti. And Dr. Madhava Seti for me is an exceptional physician. And welcome, Dr. Seti. Thank you, Grace. It's really nice to be with all of you. And I say that he's an exceptional physician because first he, he was a, and maybe he still is an engineer. So he was an engineer and he became a physician. And as an engineer, he also worked with the aerospace and defense industries for six years. And knowing a little bit more about him and my experience as a, a nurse in the critical field, I wonder, I usually wonder how a physician like him working in the current Western medical system thrives. So I wanted to ask him, what brought you to this situation where you are so like open for a lot of critical conversations and topics? So may, perhaps you can tell the audience or your background. That's a really good question, Grace. Um, and uh, I would have to say that unlike most of my colleagues in medical school who came right from uh, undergraduate education, I, as you said, I had uh, an experience in engineering and training in that field. And um, what two huge, huge um, observations uh, in my initial training was number one, the body is an incredible machine, if you want to think about it that way. I don't necessarily say that's the ultimate way of observing a human body, but just the feedback systems and um, the, the fragility and the resilience of the human body is beyond comprehension. So that is the first thing. And the second thing is, and I, I want to be respectful to the medical profession, um, but in general, we have very little idea of what we're doing. Um, you know, I mean, we have a lot, we, we know a lot, but the amount we don't know far exceeds what we do. And, um, and, and I, I would, I would support that statement with the following, like if you're doing bench research, like you're doing actual scientific, you know, physics or, um, uh, chemistry, you need an incredible amount of accuracy. You know, we're talking about six significant digits, which means, you know, a significant digit means how accurate is the information you're you're dealing with, right? That's what you need. In engineering, on the other hand, you don't need to be as precise. You know, things just have to fit together with certain tolerances. So you have, you know, maybe three significant figures. In other words, measure things to a thousandth of an inch, that should be okay. In medicine, we're just trying to get the sign right. You know what I mean by that? That means we're just hoping our intervention does more good than harm. I mean, that is the level that, you know, medical um, interventions are at. That's why we need enormous studies to demonstrate even, you know, just a modicum of, um, of efficacy. So this is where I think, you know, you know, medicine and, and uh, the medical profession has gotten a, a little bit too confident or too complacent with um, what they know. 
we're 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 like you know we're actually testing our interventions against a sugar pl a pill you know a placebo because you know the the human the, the the mental perspective on what is happening has so much to do with how our body is responding right so right away we should be saying holy moly we need to know a lot more uh and we need to be very um aware of the fact that sometimes we need to make enormous assumptions uh, and we can very often find ourselves in a situation where we're doing the wrong thing for a very long time if we're not aware of that. Did I answer your question? Oh. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Seti. So personally, how do you manage being with your colleagues who have different opinion and different perspective from you? Like uh, two, three weeks ago, I attended a conference with Advanced Medicine Conference and I was sitting next to an anesthesiologist. So I'm really happy that there's another anesthesiologist there, hmm. okay, in the integrative medicine. So I asked him the same question and he said, it's not mandatory yet, but it's, the pressure is on. So then when I ask him, oh, what are you gonna do if they really you know, pressure you that you have no other option? And he said, I guess that's the time for me to say goodbye and then I move on. So how do you manage right now working with your colleagues? Well, I'm in a very fortunate position right now because um, I'm not in clinical practice at this very moment. I've taken a break from it honestly, because of the pandemic. Um, I had planned on taking some time off to write a book, which I did. And what I was uh, observing was um, very disquieting to me. And it, it had to do with the, the mandates that were coming out, specifically about uh, mask wearing. And you know, although I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist, I can say something intelligent about uh, the efficacy of masks. And um, you know, the dynamics of breathing. Um, and I was shocked when even after two or three months, we continue to have these mandates in place. Like I can understand why initially we thought we don't know what we're dealing with. We need to all be protecting each other by wearing masks. And I thought within a couple of weeks, we would, you know, look at the research that goes back decades before that says there is no, when dealing with asymptomatic people, there is no benefit of wearing a mask we've basically quarantined the symptomatic people and we're dealing with asymptomatic people. So why are we all marrying us? Anyway, the point is, is that um, uh, that's where I started really looking deeply at, to, at the, the information and the spin that was being put on the narrative. But to answer your question, which was how do I deal with um, people in the medical field that uh, have opposing opinions, um, it's a it's a struggle, honestly. And the reason why it's a struggle, it's it's one thing to be in a community of lay persons who, you know, don't have the ability or the wherewithal to challenge edicts coming from the NIAID, the CDC, the FDA, mainstream media. You know, they have to rely upon them to tell them what to do. We as physicians. I hold them to a much higher uh, standard of uh, responsibility. It is up to us to question the guidelines. If we don't, who will? So uh, I, I don't have a lot of patience for them, honestly. Um, and uh, luckily, I've been uh, 
sequestered away from them for the last few months. Uh, so I haven't had to, um, I, I have obviously many friends who are physicians, um, critical care doctors, and um, it's astonishing to me, really, how um, how little they're willing to challenge um, the guidelines. And this is a product of the way we've been trained. And, and this is something that I hope, you know, uh, to your listeners out there, when we start thinking about you know, how is it possible that tens of thousands of doctors would be all doing the wrong thing? That's impossible. So it must, they must be doing the right thing. It is not hard to control 50,000 physicians because we have to follow guidelines. If we don't follow the guidelines, then we are placing ourselves at enormous risk of being sued. Because if just one of your patients who you treated in a non-conventional way does poorly, you have no grounds to stand on anymore because you veered away from the guidelines coming from the CDC. So um, this is where we need to look a little bit harder. So when we immediately say the guidelines must be right because all these doctors are saying that they're right, that's not at all true at all. Thank you, Dr. Sadi. And I'm glad you're really doing what you're doing and expressing yourself and putting yourself out there. And uh, so, and you are amongst peers. <laughs> we're all considered our own black sheep in our family. And yet we're doing what we're doing out of our conscience. Mm -hmm. And so I'll pass it on to Steve. All right, Dr. Sadi, it's a pleasure to have you here. Really excited and, um, uh, the last show we did, we were talking about oaths and that public officials, policemen take an oath to uphold the Constitution in Canada. It's the uh, Charter of Rights, I think. And you were sort of indirectly mentioning that doctors take an oath. Um, I think I'm not, I don't know, but I, I, as I understand it, the short of it is not to harm the patient. Um, right. So... You know, with all this going on, and like you said, it's it's not hard to get 50,000 doctors to do the wrong thing. But but so what does the oath really mean? I mean, do, do, does a patient actually have rights to say, wait a second, I want this treatment. I don't want that treatment because I, you know, you know, this treatment I heard could hurt me. And you took an oath. I mean, is there any rights like that? Yes, there are. I'm glad you brought that up. And uh you know, I, I could re refer to my comments that I made in, in New Jersey at the Health Freedom uh, Rally, uh, and that was there are two pillars that are the foundation of ethical medical practice. The one is to do no harm. The other is called informed consent. And um, this is what, you know, differentiates, uh, and I said, you know, I don't want to repeat myself, but this is what, this is basically the difference between a surgeon and a thug, both wield knives, both use them for different purposes. Um, you know, the surgeon intends to heal and the thug to harm. The surgeon gets consent first and the, and the criminal does not, right? So this is an interesting um, aspect you bring up about the, the pandemic um, and our response to it is that I'm quite certain that most people who have uh, received a vaccination have not been uh, appropriately uh, informed before giving their consent. 
there's um, if they were, here's what's interesting. If they were, I would imagine that there would be a lot more people that would be resistant to getting a vaccine. And what's even more disturbing here is that there, there is an obvious um, perceptible pressure in the ethos to not inform people completely. I mean, I hope we can all, you know, agree to that. And so we are violating that uh, that principle of informed consent when we say, well, just just you know, sign it. Or anybody who uh, says there may be um, a possible consequence, they should really be deplatformed. That's what's happening right now. Mm. What about what about a patient's right if they are aware and they say, I've seen certain reports. I've seen the VARES thing. I've seen the yellow card information and you, this could harm me. So I insist you don't do this to me. I mean, well, it's, yeah, this is very, very delicate, right? Because of course you, you know, no one is going to, you know, well, hopefully not, no one is going to, you know, charge into your house with needle in hand and hold you down and inject you. Uh, you can say no. However, there is an enormous amount of pressure to get vaccinated. I mean, in some countries you can't travel. In it, right here in America, uh, if you're a student, you have to get vaccinated. Uh, many employers force that upon them. And it's not like we're forcing you. You just can't go to school here. You can't travel. You can't work. I mean, this is this is actually when you start, you know, messing with people's right uh, and freedom to work and travel, get educated. That is a, um, you know, that's a mandate. That's an edict. You can say yeah. no, but then you can't participate in society. So it's being violated. And because it's not, um, you know, you're not breaking the law by not getting vaccinated. That doesn't mean that uh, the mandate is not being enforced. Gotcha. So with everything that's going on, the inversion of everything, the insanity of everything, this extended emergency, uh, effective treatments being swept under the rug, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Um, what, for what you're doing, what's, what, what do you think is the, the best message to get out to anyone who's listening to this to, you know, to say, what's your general core message that you would like to reach, you know, the general public? Hmm. Wow. That's, that's, um, that's a large question to answer. Um, let's see here. Well, specifically, you know, when, when we are addressing people who um, are, first of all, there is a large group of people that won't listen to anything you have to say, you know, and my message to your audience and to all of you here is I, I, I love them. I love all human beings, but don't waste your energy on them because they are stuck um, in dogma, there are going to be people on the fence who want to know more. And I would suggest that rather than going to the danger of vaccines, which we know exists for so many reasons, go rather to the solution, which is, as you said, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Th these are, these are medicines that have been proven in randomized controlled trials in observational studies in case series to be mm. as effective as a vaccine uh, in terms of efficacy and have an in incredibly great safety profile. So 
in that context, which is like, look, there is an alternative. I'm not saying, you know, don't get vaccinated and put yourself at risk for getting COVID-19 and become a long hauler or die. No, you have an alternative. And with an alternative available, now let's talk about the risk of the vaccine. So I think that's a very important um, aspect. And, you know, I, I see where this is going. It, our, our, our basic problem right now is not simply the, the chemistry or, you know, VAERS system, adverse events. We are trying to create a story here, an, a narrative, a, a means of um, negotiating the, uh, the impediments people have to seeing what is actually going on. And we have to craft an incredibly um, robust story out of compassion. Because, you know, again, here's another important point, and forgive me if I'm digressing, and you can stop me at any time. But um, we have to remember that th those who are resistant to our message, which is, you know, we need to take a cautionary position here, we have to recognize that they look at us as a threat. They think that we are actually um, uh, causing harm to them. Hold on one moment. I feel like I'm getting a call here. So, okay, no worries. Yeah, let me see if I can find out where this. Um, I lost you. We're still on. Um, my phone is over there, and it's. That's still okay. Here. Sorry. Uh, so we we have to recognize that we are a threat to them, like a physical threat. Mm. As an unvaccinated human being, we could give them a life-threatening disease. So unless we are able to recognize that, we are not going to deliver the right message, or at least we can't deliver it in a way that it's going to be, um, that will take root. And this is a very, very, uh, you know, um, difficult proposition. Yeah. I mean, because you... If you're not going to take the time to gingerly try and, uh, I guess, knock them out of hypnosis or their spell, it's not going to work. You can't just go in with the, I mean, look at this. How, how can you not see it? It's, that's not going to work. So, like you said, perhaps leave them behind or, um, you know, uh, or, you, you know, walk your own path and, and hopefully they'll at some point become aware. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right, Steve. Um, you, you can easily antagonize them forever. I mean, you can antagonize them or turn them off forever if you use the wrong approach. Um, and that's a risk that we take um, mm. every time we engage with someone. And I don't believe our side, you know, as much as we're so critical of, you know, the other side, the vaccine at all costs side, we have to be, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard than they. Um, and that means um, be able to express yourself clearly uh, without uh, making them feel like, you know, they're uninformed. And what I find, you know, you brought this up uh, or you at least alluded to this perspective, which is, you know, you show them this study that says, look, look, here it is. Here's the proof. Here's another study. They can mm. just say, I don't believe in that study. Then what are you going to do? Right. Right. Because they have their own study that says something different, or they have a source that says something different. So simply like saying, look, here's the proof, forget about it. That's not going to work. So what I find to be more constructive and productive is to look at their source. Show me the source that you're using. 
And more often than not, and the reason why it is more often than not is because I'm pretty sure that any study that says, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is a safe intervention has incredible flaws in their methodology. Um, and mm. so I try to focus more on uh, the mainstream narrative. Like, let's take a look at what Washington Post is saying about this. What is NPR saying? Where are uh, where are the blind spots in how they're approaching the data? And use their source to say, how do you explain this? How can you be so certain if we, we, we you know, we see this? So that perhaps is a far more productive than uh, saying that my, my source is better than your source. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, and before we were chatting, I, you know, I mean, it's a fact that on fluoride toothpaste, there is a poison warning because fluoride is a toxic chemical. It's a toxic poison. Most people don't know that. And even if you sort of say, well, just read your, read the back of your tube of toothpaste and look at the poison warning, they're still going to continue. Most 99% will continue to use fluoride toothpaste. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a good example. Um, well, I think I'm going to pass to John and see, see, see what else we cover, because I think we're all probably going to get a second chance to ask you some questions. And I really appreciate your time, Dr. Seti. Oh, I appreciate all of your time and what uh, all of you are doing. So, uh, and stop me Thank if you. I'm going on too long. No, this is free for all. Just uh, we're here to talk. We're here to see where it goes. Hi, Dr. Seti. How are you today? Hi, John. Um, I have a ton of questions for you, but I'm going to try and narrow it down to uh, three. Um, I myself, my full-time job is actually in a hospital, so you can consider me a healthcare worker. And my first question is, because I am on the front lines, quote-unquote, we ha- I, have pers- I have personally felt this. Uh, where the peer pressure comes on to me who have who has chosen not to take this vaccination because of lack of study, lack of uh, evidence, lack of failure to provide me with a proper long-term side effects of what can happen to me as a as a person. What can you tell for the healthcare workers out there that have chosen not to take this vaccination? Because there is a lot of peer pressure on nurses and on doctors and on pharmacists and on so many other people who have t- chosen not to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. Well, um, I think it's important uh, for healthcare providers uh, who are in that situation to see the bigger picture. I mean, th- there's the the struggle to maintain, you know, remain employed. I understand that is an enormous uh, incentive uh, to comply. There is a a bigger aspect to this because as healthcare providers, you are part of a community that has a very powerful voice, far more powerful than, you know, the same group of lay people. Okay. So as a healthcare provider yourself, um, or someone that's in the field, um, number one, you can consider yourself to have a bigger responsibility than most people, and you also have a bigger role to play. So look, this is, this is not something that you can sidestep easily. You know, we have to, right from, uh, the beginning, we have to understand that this is an enormous 
battle we're up against. It's not merely, you know, how do I stay employed and stay safe? This is a huge, huge um, uh, struggle we're up against. So if we can acknowledge, first of all, that this is a battle, it's a war, then we can be more um, willing to accept casualties. And by casualties, I'm talking about like, you know, uh, attacks from your colleagues being uh, unemployed, perhaps forever. This, this, is, this is coming with the war, sadly. But you're not powerless because if you can orchestrate and, and construct the right uh, message to people, and if you have a platform like you folks have right now, bring people together, talk about it, and educate each other, you may actually, if your devotion in your heart is to serve you know, fellow human beings and uh, create safe environments for them to thrive, this may be a more important calling for you. And not every one of your colleagues is up to that challenge. So, you know, there's no easy way out of it. I've, I've personally seen that where people or certain colleagues have told, have said that they're not going to take this vaccination. And they were the first ones in line. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh yeah. When push comes to shove, people, people will change their, their mind. I mean, it takes a, a great deal of resolve to uh, remain uh, true to your um, position. It, it's, it's, and you know, look, uh, I don't know how far we're going to get here, but it, it is almost impossible for uh, someone to truly understand what is happening unless you can put it into an even bigger context. You know, th th this pandemic, our approach to it, the authoritarian nature of um, our medical institutions, these subtle ways of getting us to comply is um, part of a pattern that uh, needs to be considered um, to fully grasp what actually is going on right now. Do you think that the medical institutions have taken taken control of the government because here in Ontario I'll tell you right now it, it feels like that is happening like the medical um, the Minister of Health is orchestrating all of this because like every time she says something it happens it's like the premier here doesn't have any strength I'm going to use the word strength and we we'll want it to be something else instead of uh, something else. One second. Mm. Um, well, let me see what, uh, if I can answer the question while you're <clears throat> attending to your child. Wait, did you want to complete that, John? What, what else did you want to say here? Sorry about that. Um, Get it rid almost of feels... Sorry? No, nothing. Go ahead. Please continue. <laughs> it, almost, it almost feels like governments have no more power anymore. And... <laughs> because it feels like there's there's this like two different sides of the medical industry i'll give you a little bit of an example uh, as as i continue um a couple of days ago three doctors including one virologist here in canada has come out and talked against the vaccinations and he he actually talked about ivermectin and his career is pretty much finished because yeah, the Ontario yeah. government, uh, the Ontario College of Physicians have completely removed his license. You're talking about Byron Bridal. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very familiar with him and his work and um, his uh, uh, addressing of your uh, committee or wherever he was speaking. I've I've heard the whole speech. I respect his opinion greatly. Um, And it's a shame that, um, and he expressed it extremely well. You know, it's like, I cannot even believe that uh, someone cannot voice an, a dissenting opinion as a, you know, he's, I think he's a, a virologist or veterinary virologist. I'm not sure, but you know, he's a, a vaccine advocate. Uh, yes. It's so anyway, I, I want to take you back, John, to um, perhaps something that uh, you may be assuming here, which is, um, is the pharmaceutical industry controlling the government, right? That, 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 I think that was the essence of your question. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest to you that um, they're part of the same uh, structure. The, you know, the, we believe that we're self-governing. That's something that I could challenge. And I think that's the greater context that I'm, I'm trying to invite us to look at. But, um, you know, the, in order for the pharmaceutical industry or the medical and the medical system itself is also greatly funded by for-profit pharmaceutical uh, institutions. So, and we have to understand something, right? Because like the conflict of interest here is so vast, yet for some reason we refuse to acknowledge it because it has to do with healthcare. Somehow that you know, uh, excuses the, all the people involved from having ulterior motives uh, or conflict of interest that will distort their judgment. That's absolutely wrong. I mean, like we know that human beings act in a certain way when there is something on the line. And so, you know, we have a pharmaceutical industry and a vaccine manufacturing industry that funds the research studies that get done they fund uh, medical training institutions, and they are, at least in the United States, the biggest uh, lobbying power. Like more than defense, more than oil, more than energy, it's it's the pharmaceutical industry. So it's naive, honestly, to, to assume that there is no conflict of interest. So I believe, John, the way to look at it is that it's not like a you know one is battling the other. I, I believe that you have, you know, good MPs and and good elected officials, but they're eventually going to kowtow to the bigger system. So, of course, you know, we're going to see resistance amongst these um, groups, but ultimately uh, it's being controlled by one force. Um, yeah. In my opinion. I think you have the, prop, the right opinion there because it's like you, you, you see it. Like before I got into the healthcare industry, I was a personal trainer for about 12 years and I'm doing that part time now. And it's it's shocking to see what the FDA and the Canadian Food and Drug uh, Food Drug and Administration here in Canada. It's shocking to see what they approve as healthy foods for human beings to consume. It's uh, it boggles my mind. And um one more thing I want to just say before I pass you on to Hartman is um, where you said that for every study, you can find another one that will contradict that study. 
I've known about that since 2009. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like this drug can do this, but I can, uh, this, this diet can, uh, I can show you a hundred diet, a hundred studies on this diet and a hundred, a hundred studies to show you that it goes completely against that diet. Correct. And well, I mean, you know, this stems right from the, one of the very first things that we mentioned in this conversation is that there's huge uncertainty with medicine, you know, like, like really, uh, uh, we're dealing with such an incredibly precise machine, if you will, if you'll use this, uh, analogy, I don't think it's a machine, but, and for example, like I, as, as an anesthesiologist, you know, we, we use medicines, uh, to completely change someone's behavior and their, um, how they perceive what's going on around them. So here's, what's interesting, right? So I, I can give you a medicine like fentanyl which is a synthetic opioid, a hundred micrograms, right? And that will like really change your experience in a very perceptible way. A hundred micrograms, right? We're talking about a hundred millionths of a gram going into a system that's 70,000 grams, 70 kilograms. So this is a indirect way of describing how like precise and and well put together our bodies are in order for them to to function so we as uh you know physicians or people pharmaceutical manufacturers i mean we're just like throwing in little you know pebbles into this incredibly well organized machine hoping that it's going to do the right thing the reason why i'm saying that is that this is why you can find a study to contradict another study you know and you know here's the thing is that this is what i'm trying to say and i, I sometimes i've lost audiences you know who say oh you know dr seti you're you're not crediting the medical field enough how dare you as a physician uh criticize uh, the enormous amounts of uh, work uh uh, that went into doing what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm not criticizing it. I, I'm merely stating that we have an unjustified level of confidence um, in um, in our approach to many problems that have to do with medicine. You know, whether that's fluoride or diet or you know vaccines. Um, thank you, Doctor Sadi. I'm sorry for the, the disruptions, <laughs> Hartman. Dr. Seti, it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, I already made also a small research about you concerning uh, that you are the CEO of Subconscious Solutions. And I want to talk about that as well, is, mm. especially in this correlation uh, here with this with the situation. Um, before that, I want to mention something to to John concerning the the governmental situation. And I want to I want to describe the situation how it is in Germany. Uh, in Germany, we have the um, the German Infection Protection Act, and as long the German Infection Protection Act is activated because of um, a national pandemic um, of um, what's the word uh, of national significance. In this moment, the health ministry is a very powerful institution. And the health minister can make decisions on his own. 
and I th and I don't know where how it is in other countries, but normally it is comparable to other countries as well. So that um, the health ministry has the power in this situation in order to activate any measurements to uh, to improve the situation. Yeah, and uh, this is uh, this is at the moment in Germany, and they have. They have uh, they have um, made an yeah they chose that this um, to make it to to uh, to to is to to, to to expand the period for this uh, national uh, epidemic situation uh, of national significance for an, for another period of time. Well, in this situation where the where the cases are nearly go to zero. Yeah, so that the health ministry is still in power. Yeah. Um, but now I want to come back to to the to the situation because, in my opinion, this is um, we are talking here about a warfare on the subconscious level. And um, and I like to I have I have a I have a picture in my mind when I try to talk to people and, uh, and and immediately understand that they don't understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, this is, a, in my opinion, it's a picture of a friendship between a whale and a clownfish. The clownfish knows everything precisely about the reef. But uh, the whale know everything about the depth of the ocean. And the, the whale can try to explain the beauty of the ocean, the clownfish, but the clownfish, clownfish will never understand because he lives only in the reef. Yeah. And, um, and uh, this is also a psychological warfare concerning our education because in the university, in school, we all learn that we have to follow specific rules so that we are accepted. And that yeah. we can live in harmony. Mm -hmm. And um, many years ago, I was I was asked very interesting questions. Someone asked me, uh, a lady asked me, when did I have the first time? When I did I have the last time the feeling that I did something wrong? That everything what I do is not enough, and um, that I will not reach my targets. And I said daily. <laughs> yeah, and this is. A situation what the what many people don't can can feel or don't don't like to feel they want to feel security they want to feel um they want to feel security it doesn't matter whether this is a lie or not and um the problem is how as we can see how deep this psychological warfare goes because it's a uh, it's a very detailed psychological warfare, so that normal people have no chance to to win this battle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. My question is: as you are talking about subconscious solutions, and I want to also emphasize the the symbol of the mask and also the stress which is which is put on the jaw by the mask. Yeah. So how can we try to find a solution subconsciously that the people or that we can win this battle because we have to start in this way. 
Hmm. Um, well, <laughs> first of all, you're right. It is a, a subconscious battle or the, the distortion goes beyond the conscious mind. Um, and uh, so, you know, presenting information about mask wearing and the fact that it's deleterious to our health, that only goes so far, you know, because ultimately people look at uh, or have been looking at unmasked people as a threat to their very existence. So uh, you, you, you cannot um, circumvent that with mirror studies that demonstrate, you know, forget, forget about pressure on the, on the jaw. I mean, just even if you, in your own mind, picture a young child who's one and a half years old at a daycare center who's crying for their mom or dad and is being consoled by the you know caretaker a well-intending adult that's wearing a mask i mean just think about the psychological impact that must have on this enormous group of young human beings moreover you know so you have that and then you have the three and four year old child who has uh, been taught now for the last 18 months that if, if if a human being is not wearing a mask, that human being is a threat. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know, but we can assume that it's not going to be good, right? So there's a lot. There's a lot there. But I'm not saying that this is not a uh, a reasonable uh, concern about you know the jaw pressure. I'm saying that because we're talking about subconscious stuff and psychological stuff, we are like changing the psychology of a generation of people. Thankfully, the mask stuff is is coming off. But um, look, you know, I, 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 you you said something very interesting, which has to do with uh, the the need to be secure, right? Um, that's what's driving all of this, and uh, the need to be secure is um, what is actually the major distortion uh, in the way we're looking at things. Because this leads to what, what's called confirmation bias. You know, do we all know what that confirmation bias is? That means we tend to accept things that confirm what we know and uh, dismiss things that, uh, that counter that. Why are we doing that? Like, let's look a little more deeply into that. The reason why we're doing that is that it feels better to be right. Not simply because like, oh, I'm right and you're wrong it gives us a certain level of confidence when we interact with the world. It's like, I'm doing the right things. Like now I can take greater chances, right? So this is a very important aspect of this is that because we want to feel comfortable, we tend to uh, um, galvanize our opinions about things and we're much more resistant to challenging them. And I would suggest that at the basis of this is fear. We don't want to be wrong and we don't want to perish. And so this has led us as a society, and this is you know why it's important to put everything into context here. This has led us to a, uh, a con uh, conforming, not confirming, but conforming way of behaving. It has proven 
to be a better for our survival if we all sort of stay together, you know, in herd mentality, we all need to do the same thing because outliers tend to get, you know, uh, crushed. Um, and this is, I would uh, say, is the most important uh, subconscious distortion that we have here is that the majority is not always right. In fact, whenever there has been an e enormous shift of understanding from here to here, the people who are talking about it, you know, about the right way, were always in the minority first. You know, it, it, it's not like one day we wake up and do the right thing. For like years or decades, people are saying that we're doing the wrong thing. We need to do this. And they are the ones that get uh, attacked, you know, potentially for generations. Um, and the reason why we take so long to move is a number of things is that it's fearful. It's scary to move. Um, and number two is that we're still stuck in the idea that the minority can't be right. It's impossible. You know, there's so many other people that believe this. How could you be right? Um, and, and forgive me if I'm going too deep into this, but this is a an interesting aspect to our psychology is that it, it is very, very easy, especially for a, I don't want to say lazy, but that's what I mean. A, a lazy population that does not want to do the research themselves to, uh, come up with a false majority. And the reason why I say that is that like, if you take a certain issue, you know, a political issue, let's say, and you don't really want to research it, you basically say, well, you know, what, what is everybody else voting, right? Like, I'm just going to vote like everybody else. So now you become part of a, a majority, but it's not a true majority. The true majority is a group of people that have all independently come to the same conclusion. That carries far more relevance and validity than a large group of people where 60% of them or 80% of them are just going along with what they think the informed people are doing. So we are very often caught in a situation where although we believe that it's better to be in the majority, we don't even know what the majority is. Um, and I believe that's happening right now all the time. And it's being, you know, it's being conveyed that way by uh, our media organizations. It's like anybody who um, who is is uh, speaking against what we're saying, we're not just going to say they're wrong. We're going to say that they're conspiracy theorists intent on destabilizing humanity's systems of, you know, uh, control and government. I mean, we, we're being attacked uh, and th that is, I think I digressed enormously there. Where, where, where were we going with this? No, that's good. Go ahead. That's, that's good flow. <laughs> we right. have, because the situation, what are, because it, it's like that, the, there is, um, the quality, let's say someone, we, many people have a belief system or then we have a spirituality. We have a feeling for right and wrong. Let's say, make it simple. Everyone has the most many people have a feeling for right and wrong. And this feeling for right and wrong, this quality, the quality of this feeling depends also on the quality of the relationship. If I have good relationships, let's say on a, on a trust level, then I trust myself also much better. 
For example, if I have a, if I if I uh, if I have an environment of of a of a loving family, then I have a good connection to my sister or to my to my parents, mm -hmm. and I have more self confidence. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this self and this self confidence gives me also the 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 possibility to to make my own decisions. Yes, not only that, but it gives you the uh, uh, the confidence to take chances. Yes, and and, yeah. and with the masks, for example, like you like you said, with the baby, if if a one and a half year old baby is looking in a face with a mask, there is no interaction, there is no connection. So the problem is the the self confidence of these children is already on a subconscious level disturbed. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, yes, uh, and. Um... You know, let, let's just cut right down to the chase here. Like, you know, what 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 is at stake here? And as I, I would assume all of you know, I mean, all fear comes down to the fear of death. You know, everything is about death, right? And and this is where you know maybe uh, I don't know if you've looked at uh, my book uh, Woke, but um, that book is really the the bigger picture in in, in which to consider what's happening here with the pandemic. The pandemic is, is really the tip of an iceberg. And if, you know, we don't see it like that uh, because we don't know the context. But so, so death, this book uh, is about challenging three big paradigms in our, in our uh, conscious mind and our subconscious mind. The first is what is death? The second is what is money and what is war? These three things, exist but they're not what we think it is so let's just talk about death for example um and uh most people you know this is again where the the, the dichotomy is most people you know uh who go to church or temple or you know have some uh religious um uh vocation avocation um many of these subscribe to the idea of an afterlife, right? A, a, a judgment day uh, or reincarnation or, you know, whatever it is, right? But that's not the way they behave. We behave like this is all we got. You know, it's from here until I die every day and I have to, you know, accumulate things, uh, power, time, whatever it is. So right away, like there's a schism. You know, we, we say we believe in this, but then we act in this way. So uh, in one of the chapters in Woke and Anesthesiologist View, I approach the idea of death uh, from an anesthesiologist's point of view. And what's really interesting here, and, and, and this is why I, I, I hope uh, people will consider looking at it, is anesthesia is a remarkable intervention medically. This is like one of, one of the miracles of Western medicine. You know, if, if it wasn't for modern anesthesia, what we would be doing would be barbaric, you know, just the way it was uh, 200 years ago, where you'd hold people down and give them a piece of leather to chew on and then, you know, take some whiskey and then start amputating, right? That's what we'd have to do. Now it becomes incredible. Like we have this medicine that always works and people are out and they're back and their leg is gone or what you know, surgery's done. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's miraculous. What is even more astounding is that we don't know how anesthetic gases work. 
this is the biggest mystery in, in modern medicine. We have no idea what it is. And, you know, as a resident, uh, 23 years ago, the very first day I was in the operating room with my mentor, I didn't know anything about anything. And he was turning the, can you see me? He was turning the dial on the anesthetic, the vaporizer to, you know, increase the depth of anesthesia on the patient that we were taking care of. And he said, Madhava, if you can figure out how this works, you'll win, you'll win the Nobel prize. You know why he told me that? It's because his mentor 40 years ago said the same thing. And what is still being said today, you know, we say it to all of our anesthesiologists in training. If you can figure out how this works, you'll win the Nobel prize. Why haven't we figured out how anesthetic gases, I'm not talking about, you know, other classes of anesthetics. I'm talking about ether. I'm talking about sevoflurane. These are anesthetic gases. Like you take a gas like sevoflurane, for example, if I give you one part in 50 in your, in your mixture of breathing, you're gone. I mean, by you're gone, I mean, you're unconscious. And there's no way you're going to wake up until I turn it off. It is the most reliable kind of medicine uh, that we use. It, it works on everybody. If you get the concentration correctly, if you're measuring that correctly, there's no way to wake up if you're on it. And um, we don't know how it works. And what's even more fascinating is that this is one of the most simplest molecules that we have. It's only you know, uh, I don't know, a few hundred Daltons, which means, you know, it's it's a, a very small chain of hydrocarbons that are chlorinated and fluorinated, and it works all the time. Why haven't we figured out how it works? Now, if you'll allow me, I'm going to go even more deeper. How do we know, when we say in medicine that we know how something works, what does that mean? What that means is, is that we've identified the cascade of molecules that are involved in its action. This is the medicine. It hooks up with this receptor that does this. And then there are these intracellular uh, proteins that get activated that create another protein, blah, 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 blah. And then you have the action that you want. That's what we mean in Western medicine when we say we, we know how it works. What we're saying is that we know the molecules and the mechanism. That's what it means. Why haven't we figured out how uh, anesthetic gases work? What we have found out is that these things affect so many different things in the body from the transcription of uh, uh, proteins to uh, the firing of neurons to what happens in the lipid bilayer around each individual cell. It seems to affect everything at some level, right? So that means that awareness or consciousness must be coming from the entire body, number one. But there's a, a greater a greater puzzle here, which is let us say that we were able to identify, find out how it works. By our definition, knowing how something works means we have identified the molecules that are responsible for the action that we're trying to modify, right? How are we ever, honestly, like I'm asking you to think about this conceptually, how are we ever going to come to a group of molecules that represent awareness? Because if we mm. did, if we said, oh, look, you know, these are when these things are interacting like this, then you're aware. So what does that mean? That means these are the aware things and everything else is not. How is that possible? That does not make any sense. And so the typical response to this line of arguing or this argument is, 
well, you know, Dr. Seti, we know that, you know, the, um, there's certain uh, uh, neural pathways in the midbrain, uh, the uh, reticular activating system, for example, that must be active for a person to be awake. You need to have, you know, these things going on. And so I say, okay, so you're saying that's the part that's aware and then you, you, nothing else is? That's you? Those pathways are you, really? It's more reasonable to consider the fact that those things that you identify as being active are the sign that awareness is present in your body rather than those things are giving rise to awareness. Are you guys with me on this? Am I saying too much here? No. We're good? Okay. So this is a very important uh, aspect. So if we can at least say maybe that, you know, the reticular activating system, for example, is, 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 is active when you're, when someone is aware, maybe that's a sign that awareness is in the body at that time. The implication is that where awareness or consciousness may not in fact be a product of a functioning human body, but it gives rise to a functioning human body. It's a huge paradigm shift. Why would anyone, you know, take this seriously? Like, uh, that, that's crazy. You're saying that the body does not give a, a rise to awareness. You know, th that whole idea of the body giving a rise to awareness is a philosophical construct called materialism, where material. Uh, one question. Oh, go one ahead. One question, sorry. Uh, because of our understanding. Do, we, do I understand that you say that the body adjusts itself to... Um, to rising awareness. Did I understand it right? That uh, itself, that it's not from inside, but it adjusts itself to this field of rising awareness. I, I think I understand what you're saying. I'm challenging the idea that a that the body is giving rise to awareness. That's that's the the paradigm that I'm challenging, and you know to reiterate, number one, we don't know how anesthesia works. Number two, if we were to find out how it works, that would leave us in a very uncomfortable position, which means we somehow are attributing awareness to a certain part of the body only and not to other parts of the body, right? Both of those should at least make us open to another possibility, which is that awareness itself, consciousness, is not a function of the, 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 our physiology. And the mm -hmm. most immediate response that we should have, which it should be like this, you know, Madhava, you give me a medicine and I fall asleep. So how can you say it has nothing to do with the body, right? It must do with the body because I'm, you know, I'm, you're messing with someone's mechanics and, and chemistry and they're no longer awake. Here's what's interesting, okay? If I uh, were to give you a... Uh, an amnestic medicine, which means you 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 uh, temporarily lose the capacity to remember things. Okay, I can take you into an operating room, not give you any anesthetic gases. You get some local anesthesia from the surgeon, and I keep your mind um, engaged in a conversation, uh, a story, whatever you want to do, and we finish the surgery, a very minor surgery, we go to the recovery room and you will have no idea that you just had surgery, none. And um, this, 
this happens. You know, people have asked me several times when I say, no, your surgery is done. They, they look at me in disbelief and say, well, how could that possibly be? We were talking the whole time. I don't remember what we we're talking about now, but there's no way I had an operation. And I say, you know, go look at your arm. And there's the, you know, there's the bandage covering it. They've asked me to remove the bandage. They cannot believe that there's going to be a surgical incision here with a dressing on it. So here's my point. And, and, and this is part of a bigger um, explanation that I, I would like to offer here. It is quite possible that we are aware all the time, but we don't have the ability to remember what happened to us retrospectively. And this example I'm giving you is one example of that. It's that, that person. And to us who were with the patient the whole time, that person appeared to be completely awake and aware. You know, they were talking, they were answering questions, you know, they were telling me a story they have, but they can't remember that time. We have no way to, they, by our definition, were completely aware. Afterwards, they have no recollection. So how do we know that doesn't happen when someone is completely under with general anesthesia with ether, for example, or sevoflurane? We don't, we have no way. Now here comes another twist. Near-death experiences. Okay, these are the number in the thousands, and some of them happen in the operating room, okay? A near-death experience happens when someone is very close to death or is clinically dead, and then resuscitative efforts are made, and they come back to life. Most often, you know, there's no recollection of the whole event, but sometimes people will say, oh, yeah, I, I, I remember the whole thing. And we say, how can you remember the whole thing? Okay, tell me what happened. They'll say, well, you know, you asked for epinephrine and the nurse with the red hair had to leave the operating room to get it or there was some mistake. And then you ask for paddles uh, and then the big guy, you know, he's the one that put them on. They remember everything. You know, this is not like a reconstruction uh, of random firing in your brain. They viewed the whole thing from outside of their body and they remember being uh, having the choice to come back to reanimate their bodies. And they chose to come back. And more often than not, the rest of their life has far more meaning. You know, they, they see, number one, that life is precious. Not that life is not precious, but life is precious. And death is not the end. That is an incredible, you know, liberating event in their lives to be, to at least extract themselves from the constant fear, the fear that's behind all fear, which is the termination of our existence. Now, so we have near-death experiences. And finally, is the evidence behind reincarnation, okay? I don't know if anyone has looked into this deeply, but there are th there's amazing anecdotal evidence. It, you know, Steve, you're, you're smiling like, like it's, you know, coming from a wake mind, I assume that you looked at <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, I've uh, gone well down the reincarnation rabbit hole for myself. Yeah, something I totally. Why it's really important. Okay, so first of all, if people say, "Well, you know, until you show me evidence that there's reincarnation, I'm not going to believe it." How are you supposed to show someone physical evidence of reincarnation? We're talking about something that transcends your body. You're not going to find it. Sorry, you know, if, if that's what you, if your you know standards are. I want to see the molecular mechanism of reincarnation. You're not going to find it, you know, sorry. So you, you have to look at this, 
differently. What we have are thousands of children, children, you know, these are children from the first time they started to be uh, uh, vocal, verbal, they started talking about another life. And these aren't lives like, you know, I was Cleopatra or, or, you know, I used to be a czar in Russia. They're mundane. You know, it's like, oh, I lived in this, you know, gray house uh, on the end of a, a dirt road. And, you know, my husband, you know, was kind of a jerk. And I had two kids and blah, 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 blah. And these parents, rather than saying, don't talk about these silly stories, some of them have parents that are like, oh, tell me more. Like, tell you know, they write it down, they catalog it, and eventually they find the family from which that soul, the child's soul, had left. And this child is able to confirm everybody in that family, like, you know, secret stories uh, that only the mother in that case would have known that died. How many times can you say that, well, that's just a coincidence? It's not a coincidence anymore. You know, that's what's happening. And the reason why this is so important, and first of all, it, it gives rise to the um, the dissolution of fear around death, number one. But in, in my opinion, by the way, we're not talking about vaccines anymore. I hope you're okay with that. Um, brilliant. It's brilliant. It's okay. No, this is great. It's great. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. I I believe, and you know, now I'm moving into yet another, you know, um, pseudoscientific uh, argument. I believe that every advanced civilization will come to the um, collective understanding that we're reincarnating. And when that happens, that is the catalyst for enormous transformation on, on the planet, wherever planets you know, you're living on. Because once you, once you accept that that's what's happening, you'll realize that everybody on this planet constructed our history. You know, the, the person who's tormenting you right now is probably somebody that you tormented, you know, 200 years ago. You know, that's what's happening. Like, and at that point, if there's enough, you know, intelligence in the collective, you, you'll eventually come to the understanding. like, holy cow, we're just going to keep going and going and going in this? Or are we going to come together and say, we got to stop tormenting each other, people? Like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, of course, it matters if you die, but you're going to come back. And why would you want to keep the suffering going? At least let's not contribute to suffering. So, you know, and, and all of these things that are happening right now, they're all sort of interconnected, you know, like what's the fear of the pandemic? Well, it's the fear of dying. That's reasonable. We don't want to die. But why do we need to, you know, go to these extreme measures to prevent uh, you know, to, to control people and what they're doing, it, it boils down to our our relationship with death, which at least in the West is horrible. You know, we hide it from our eyes. We put the wisest elderly people in homes, right? In in other uh, societies, and Grace, you may know this, but you know, in India, it, it's a it's it's an enormous accomplishment to reach your eighth decade. And you have, you know, you're venerated, you're, you're cared for by, you know, your extended family. There's no fear of getting old. It's like, oh man, I, you know, and people listen to you. 
that's not what we do in this country. There's like our relationship with fear is terrible. A, a relationship with death is terrible and old age and the whole thing. Helmet, we're losing you, man. Is you're you're Harmer, can you speak? Yes, I can speak. I'm sorry, I'm here, but my, okay. my camera doesn't work. My camera is uh is straight. I like sorry. I said too many disturbing things and you're just breaking up now. Can you hear me? you yeah. No, I mean your your yeah. image. Yeah, my image don't work. I don't know why. You're deconstructing in front of my eyes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the content, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, this is very interesting what you say because um, uh, what you're talking about is the natural energetic field, or I say, um, I believe this is a theory, what I have, which I have not examined scientifically, but we based on water. And water is for me consciousness, mm. and we are um, we are all interconnected, and this is also by uh, let's say in my opinion by uh, by our pulse electric connected field which is around us, mm -hmm. and um, also our brain works on pulse electric uh, uh, on uh, pulse electric fields, and the interesting thing is that. Um, in my opinion, this is the subconscious warfare because we heard that in the vaccinations are specific things which can be nanoparticles, which can be, and uh, we had, for example, Celeste Solomon here on the show. She said that this um, vaccination has the possibility to change the magnetism in our body. And... Um, if this, if the magnetism, if the magnetism, magnetism in our body uh, changed, this would mean that there is uh, the the connection to the soul can be different, and maybe we, and this can this this is a theory. I don't have any proof for this, but when I see what you said, that three people have the possibility to to remember the reincarnations. So they so they have also they they will not only remember the incarnation they will understand that I am you. Yes, yes. You know, look, look, we're going we're going really really deep philosophically here. I mean, you know, we're, we're challenging many um, perspectives. You know, and uh, honestly, this is an incredibly deep conversation. Um, so uh, you know, and we're we're talking about philosophical concepts like you know non duality. And I, I, I would, you know, look, here's let, let, let's let's go back. Like, so the magnetism thing, like there's a possibility that what you're saying is true. But what, what's perhaps the most a more uh, constructive uh, position about this is to um, is to really consider, like, how do we move the needle more towards clarity? Like, you know, if you come at someone and say, you know, if you get injected with a vaccine, it's going to, you know, there's magnetoparticles that are going to disassociate you from your soul. I mean, forget about it. Like, you're not going to reach anybody. Right. So we're trying to construct and educate each other so that we can educate others. So I would suggest, like, I don't want to dismiss what you're saying. I don't know anything about that. I, I've heard those arguments before. Um, but it's interesting because the way you said it was it, it disconnects you from your soul which I believe is what you said. And right away we have to ask, well, so you're not your soul? Like, what are you then? You know, so like, 
we're, we're, we're diving into very, very complicated matters. Um, uh, on the other hand, and you know, I think this is perhaps more productive as we're closing down here. I can talk forever, as you've noticed, um, is that we, we have a, a, a real problem right now because um, when we're talking about the safety of the vaccine, let's go back to the vaccine, for example, because we have a reporting system, VAERS, which uh, is being used by both sides of the argument, right, of, of, of the vaccine industry or vac vaccination program. You have the, um, the vaccine cautionary sphere, also known by the other side as the anti-vaxxers, which most are not. But you have them saying, look, the, the, the thing is off the charts. Like, when are we going to stop and take a look at this, right? But then you have the conventional perspective saying, oh, you can't rely on it. It's self-reporting. So throw it all away. How are you going to, you know, negotiate that kind of argument? Well, the first thing is, is, um, is to say, well, what else do we have? We don't have anything else, right? So why were we willing to accept VAERS data for the last 30 years? And today we don't want to accept it. What, what, what is your argument for that? And there's, there's two arguments, right? One is that, uh, well, all of those reports of deaths and, you know, horrible tragedies, the hundreds of thousands of adverse uh, uh, events were manufactured by the anti-vax community because it's self-reporting, they can go in there and put in, you know, 10,000 reports of stuff that were purely fabricated. Is that happening? I can't prove that it's not. So if that's happening, we don't know. On the other hand, their other argument is, oh, how do you know that these deaths, for example, had anything to do with the vaccine? We don't know that. We actually do know that. And, and this is where I would uh, suggest to people to look a little harder rather than just dismissing at it as self-reporting and there's been no mechanism tied and we have to do more. Okay. Have you looked at um, the temporal uh, uh, distance in a, in, or you were vaccinated at day one? Where did the deaths occur? Has anyone looked at that? Yeah, people have. If it was just a random event, the death following the vaccine, you would see the deaths that were being reported happening evenly as time went on. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. It's just an unrelated event. So it can't be due to the vaccine. That's how it would look like. That's not what's happening. The deaths are occurring mostly in the first 24 hours or the first 48, and then they come down slowly. This is at least an indirect indication that the vaccine caused the event. It's not an independent thing. You have that to look at. You also, if you uh, uh, look at the CDC death data, like how many deaths are occurring uh, on a weekly basis, there seems to be an increase in deaths uh, on a weekly basis compared to baseline. Baseline changes based on the season, but there's a pretty clear indication that there's more deaths happening right now. They're not being attributed to anything. Could it be due to, the due to the vaccine? Absolutely, it could be. We don't know that for sure. But what else is the reason for this? Because that increase in deaths are happening right with the vaccine rollout. Moreover, 
look, you know, 20 to 25 percent of healthcare providers don't want to get a vaccine. Why? Are, are they just the, the more skeptical? Are they are they more um, uh, open to conspiratorial thinking? Or is it because they're watching what's happening to the people they're caring for? How, honestly, can you dismiss that body of opinion uh, from the entire argument, from the, you know, from the, the whole discussion? So there is enough here, even though we know that VARES is self-reporting, to recognize that we have a problem on our hands. I understand. Yeah. Thank you. Well, wow. oh, thank you. Yeah, this was. Uh, thank you. I apologize <laughs> that I took so much time, but I it was really up, amazing. Man, it was up. a brilliant uh, conversation. I really appreciate, Doctor Seti. It was. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, yes, because um, uh, it's this. Uh, it is a very deep. The the whole the the whole world is uh, involved in these things, in this situation yeah. right now, and. We have to understand, or let's say it this way, the people who understand what we are talking about here, uh, they they have the possibility to get the, the huge picture of what, what's going on. And I really appreciate what you said. Thank you so much, sir. Well, you're most welcome, Elmut. And yes, the big picture is very important. We cannot look at these things individually. It's all fitting into a, a tapestry. Uh, you know, we, we, the thing is, is that we, we have to understand that we are trying to undo, you know, perhaps centuries or thousands of years of programming um, that uh, have been uh, imposed upon us without us knowing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to get into too many, uh, you know, conspiratorial narratives here, but it's pretty clear that, you know, the uh, our understanding of our own death is the leverage point by which uh, narratives can be enforced. Um, and we have to come to an understanding of that. And, you know, there, there are other, you know, as I said, um, I, I hope people will look at my book, Woke, because th that's where I, I um, hit those points. Um, and our understanding of what money is, is like so basic. We, we have no idea what it is we're doing and how we're being controlled by the control of the monetary supply. You know, so that's another discussion in Woke. And then finally, I go into war and, and false flags, um, which I hope we understand what that is. But here's the thing, guys, is that you just can't show up with this interesting argument and say, look, this is, you know, you don't really die when you die and money's not what you think it is. And, you know, these wars were actually uh, orchestrated uh, to keep us in fear um, and to keep this money machine going. No one's going to buy that. Right. So, I mean. People will buy it, but people, like, you know, how do you bring people over is the question. Those of us who understand this, we're, we, we understand it. It's like, I, I don't need another read another book by Dr. Seti about this stuff. But the people on the other side, why should I read a book about, you know, these things? Because we know it's wrong. Um, so the first third of the book, and Grace, forgive me if I'm talking about my book too much, but the first third of the book um, has to do with bias. You know, what are biases? This is the reason why we can't see what's in front of us. And um, how does a mind recognize that it is biased? 
This is not so easy. It's the equivalent of how does someone see their blind spots? How do you see a blind spot? You can't see it. That's why it's a blind spot, right? So you have to approach this indirectly. And um, these biases are basically prejudices. Like, why do we interpret things a certain way? Like, why can't people... Why do we see what's going on, but other people can't even conceive that there could be a nefarious plot or that what we're being told is wrong? It's because they're, we're biased in a certain way and they're biased in a certain way. And, you know, the word woke, for example, is being misused. And, and you know, you can use words any way you want to. I'm not saying that, you know, there's only one way to use the word woke. But it came from uh, uh, its attribution to the Buddha 2,500 years ago. When you know, when asked to describe himself, he would say, "I'm I'm awake." That's what it is. And so now, this word has come back into uh, you know the ethos as being representative of someone who is aware of um, you know social injustices and systemic racism and things like this. But the actual word has to do with the idea that a mind that is free of delusion suffers less and that is an enormous enormous um statement to make uh because first it has to do with delusion and the idea that if you are not deluded reality is compassionate that is an enormous statement right there right if you see things clearly suddenly you're living in a world that is actually quite amazing and you suffer less that's a huge proposition and this is why a third of the book has to do with investigating our own biases. And you can't. You can't go to someone and say, oh, you're biased. Why would they, you know, even grant you the time of day? So what I have attempted to do in this book is rather than identifying biases, identify sources of biases. In other words, what are the conditions that are fertile ground for biased-like thinking to emerge? Can we identify them? We can. We can identify them far more than we can identify our own biases because we can't really, like, a mind can't see its bias. But can you identify situations where, for example, um, you're overconfident in your opinion? How do you know you're overconfident? Well, you, you refuse to look at the opposing argument. And here's what's interesting is that um, uh, being overconfident in your position you know, basically being certain that you're right is slightly different than being certain that the other person is wrong. Because there are situations where someone comes up to you with their counter argument and you're like, I don't want to hear about it. I know you're wrong. That's a little bit different than saying, I don't want to hear about it because I know I'm right. Look at it closely because in the latter, when I know I'm right, beyond any um, uh, argument that I'm right, you're closed. You're totally shut down to any possible counter argument. As opposed to someone coming up and starts telling you about something and you say, no, I know you're wrong. Okay, maybe you're right that that guy's wrong, but you're still open to hearing a counter argument. So, you know, this is how subtle and this is how closely we have to look at our own consideration of what's happening on the planet. Where are our biases? You know, most of us don't even understand that we are uh, have been uh, programmed.
for a very long time. And unless you um, address these things, there's very little hope that we're going to uh, disentangle ourselves from the narratives that we are being uh, forced to consume. I think I said enough there, didn't I? Uh, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much, Dr. Seti. It was uh, amazing. Yes, brilliant. Uh, I have nothing to say. This, this was, thank you so much for the statement. I, I, I appreciate it and I give to Grace. <laughs> sure. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Seti. And my, oh, Grace, uh, we're coming back to you. You didn't say anything. You said nothing. You brought me here and you basically said nothing. <laughs> say something. Come on. No, I'm going to say something now. But first yeah. of all, thank you so much. And no, you don't need to um, apologize. I, I, I'm happy and I'm sure everyone's happy in where the conversation went. And so with that said, you really have to come back again next time. So yes, please. Can, uh, because those are the topics. For us, we, we dive into critical topics because if we don't, then that fear will always be there. So it's perfect. And so when I really um, knew that the title of your book was Woke, the first thing that came into my mind, this is perfect, perfect. What I didn't even read it yet, and, you know, anything, but I know it's just perfect for everything that we're going, you are going to talk about or what's happening now. So, and lately, lately I've been say, saying to myself or contemplating on the statement, the mind is the administrator of our consciousness and the body is the instrument through which consciousness will express. And if, and if we don't talk about this, if we don't remember, and that's again, you know, we have to keep remembering who, what we are, and so we could bring things together for our peace. And and uh, my, my my I know you're running out of time, but in the future, <laughs> my I I would like you to talk more late later on about that uh, your experience from being in the aerospace because I know that you could talk more on the on on the, our our relationship with other planets and other stars in heaven and what we have to look forward to instead of narrowing our existence in this little blue planet. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, well, yes. I mean, I, I really, you know, I, I would love to talk to all of you again, but you know, as a, as a, as a parting um, uh, thought to consider uh, to the audience is um, the stuff about bias. It's, it's very, very important. Imagine that we are all living on a planet, you know, seven and a half billion of us, where we have no biases. I'm not saying that that's even possible, but let's assume that we can get to that place. And by bias, I'm talking about having uh, prejudices, whether it be against people, things, or how we interpret information. Imagine that we were all free of bias. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> when we're presented with some information that has to do with medicine, like a vaccine, for example, and you have no biases at all, some people have a great deal of background in molecular biology, immunology, vaccinology. Some people have absolutely none, right? The people without bias that are extremely well-informed 
should come to consensus. And that consensus could be, oh, well, we don't really know. But it could be like, oh, this is this actually, it, it makes sense. You know, they're, they're not worried about, you know, fear of death or anything. There's no bias at all. The people who are not, uh, who can't actually understand the information have to, they'll arrive at a point where they'll say, I don't know. I, I, I can't know. I just don't understand this stuff. Here's the thing. There won't be any disagreement. There will, there's, where would the disagreement come from if there's no bias? If people are actually seeing things very clearly, we, we will tend not to disagree. Okay. This is why bias is important. It's not just, you know, learning everything you have to learn about everything. Look at your biases because as a planet, if we were not biased, there wouldn't be any argument. We could say like, well, how sure are you? Well, the person who is unbiased that doesn't know will say, look, I have nothing to gain or lose here. I, I can tell you that I don't have anything to protect. I don't know. So you tell, you know, whatever you think, that's great. I'm still, I don't know. So here is where we start to converge towards our understanding of what is and what isn't collectively. You know, this is the mark, I believe. You know, you mentioned other civilizations and planets. I th obviously, they're out there. And, and, you know, we talked about understanding that you're reincarnating as being one of the, you know, basic steps a civilization takes is to understand that. The other is to eliminate bias and to come together in an understanding. It's not going to be like we know what everything is, but we know what we don't know. There's not going to be someone that says, you know, I know this and they're wrong. It's like, no, we, you know, we know we're pretty sure about this and we're uncertain about these things. There's no reason to fight anymore. And this is where knowing itself becomes a collective process. You know, we are stuck in this situation where we think of ourselves as individuals and we have to fight for our opinion and, you know, convince others. At some point, you know, in, in very advanced civilizations that have taken a good look at, done their inner work as individuals, they will arrive at a place where people agree. <clears throat> and that's really interesting because I would suggest that 7 billion minds that are free of bias are going to get to the answer far quicker than 7 billion minds that are biased and have their own stereotypes and their own prejudices. And, you know, and there's the fear of death involved. Forget about it. I mean, like, it's, it's a miracle, honestly, that we're still here. Thank you so much, Dr. Sadi, and thank you to our audience. So please uh, check out the website and uh, madhavasadimd.com and his, his book and all the other things and truly grateful to have met you in new jersey you know and i'm glad i didn't hesitate to approach you and so we'll do it again okay i would love that it's really nice to meet all of you you're great souls thank you for the work you're doing peace everybody thank you dr seti thank, thank you. you thank you dr seti thank you bye guys